Last week, um, we were looking at Nehemiah 3, where all the different classes of people, all the different family groups, all the different occupations, all kinds of people got involved in the work on the wall. And the point of that uh, message really was that we too, regardless of our social class or our gender or age or occupation or training or whatever else, we too need to be involved in the work, in God's work, in advancing his kingdom. And the point that David made is that we need to do that work to the absolute best of our ability. You remember he mentioned Michelangelo painting carefully in the corner of the Sistine Chapel because God sees. And the Sunday school teacher who who prepares well and arrives 20 minutes in advance so that she can set up the room so that things are right when the children get there because she's doing it for the Lord. Well, I think it would have been totally unfair to uh, consider that passage last week and not also consider Nehemiah 4. The reason is because as soon as you decide to get involved, as soon as you decide to do your best, everything's going to fall apart on you. That Sunday school teacher, the morning she decided to get there 20 minutes early for the first time is the morning the car wouldn't start. And the children decided that they hated church and laid on the floor crying instead of getting dressed. And she says, God, what's going on? Why is this happening? Don't you want me there? You know, I don't uh, preach up here all that often. It's still infrequent enough that I start getting nervous about uh, three weeks in advance. (laughs) And usually the adrenaline is sufficient that I start studying then. I start working in study whenever I could. But this time, doggone it, there's so many things came up over and over. This thing I had to take care of, that thing I had to take care of. And it ended up I had about two good weeks, and I was really expecting to have those weeks to prepare. Well, two weeks ago I got the flu, and all I could do was work when I absolutely had to and sleep whenever I could. But uh, nevertheless, about, uh, oh, by last weekend I was feeling good. By Monday I had my schedule pretty much clear. My wife, uh, Becky, is a great wife. Whenever I'm under a lot of pressure, she works hard to free me up to study. Well, Tuesday, she and my daughters came down with the flu. And they came down real hard. And I had no choice but to take some time off and, and take care of them, because they, they were completely unable to take care of themselves. Now, I, I tell you all this not to make excuses for what you're going to hear this morning. Uh, a few excuses might not hurt. But I tell you this because, I, for me, it really illustrated. I felt like God was applying immediately what I was studying, that... Uh, as soon as you try to do your best, and I really wanted to do a good job, I really wanted to do my best, that's when things started going wrong. That's when the frustrations and the obstacles started coming up. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. Actually, we should expect it. It's what I think Paul is talking about in, in uh, 2 Corinthians. Listen to J.B. Uh, Phillips' paraphrase of 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9. It says, We are frustrated on all sides, but we're never stopped. We're puzzled, but we never despair. We're persecuted, but we never have to stand it alone. We may be knocked down, but we're never knocked out. Now, this is is exactly what Nehemiah was facing. Nehemiah was not idealistic. He was not naive. He had planned well. He had done the hard work of getting ready. He had gotten those letters from Artaxerxes, uh, giving him authority to build the wall and protection. He had ordered the materials. He had done everything he could reasonably to prepare. And I'm sure he must have thought he had the the problems fairly well covered. 
He'd gotten involved. He was doing his best. And that's when everything started to fall apart. Let's look at uh, how Nehemiah handles this. Look at Nehemiah 4. Let me read just the first verse. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry, and he mocked the Jews. Sanballat, that's a great name for a villain, you know. It's kind of like Cruella de Vil. just sounds evil, Sanballat. Well, Sanballat, uh, when he heard that they had gotten to work, got furious. Now, why? There's a couple things at work here. First of all, Sanballat obviously had a vested interest in there being no rival governor in Judea. Judea had been under his dominance. He could do with and to the Jews whatever he pleased. And he didn't want to see anyone standing up for them or anyone diminishing his own influence and power. But that self-interest is really insufficient for the intensity of his anger, of his rage. It says, literally, he burned and was very angry. You see what happens is Satan takes very reasonable or rational reasons and he energizes them, intensifies them into irrational hatred or irrational rage that he can use then and manipulate for persecution. And that's what he does here. He intensifies Sambalot's reaction. You know, the, the, today the people who oppose our gospel have good reasons. They may be wrong reasons, but they're rational a lot of people honestly believe that Christian lifestyle and philosophy produces guilt and inhibitions which hold our society back and really hurt people. And others, less noble, have their pride at stake. They've got reasons for their anger. If the gospel is true, then they've wasted their lives or their education has been all wrong. And Satan would take these reasonable, though incorrect, reasons and energize them into hatred, into to a, a persecution, an intensity that's beyond those rational reasons. And that's what he did for, for Sambalat. So Sambalat begins to mock the Jews. Verses 2 and 3. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. Here is Sambala, sitting with the powerful in Samaria. The, the, the term that's translated here, the wealthy, in some other translations you may have is, is translated the army. What it, what it really means is the powerful, the influential, whether they're financially powerful or militarily, militarily, start that one up, militarily powerful. They're the influential people. And here they are sitting in the splendor of Samaria, with its sophistication, feeling powerful and feeling important. And they're thinking about this ragtag group of, of insignificant people trying to build a wall around some hick town. And they think, what an absurdity. Who do these people think they are? What do they know about building? What resources do they have compared to our resources? Who do they think they are even trying to do something like this? And they're heaping ridicule on these people, on, on the Jews. Ridicule has always been a major tool of opposition. And it's... Very effective. 
Let me read a quote from a guy by the name of Alan Redpath. It says, When the Christian dares to say that the only hope of the world is the gospel of God's redeeming grace, the whole force of modern civilization and education lines up against him and says, You, with your feeble prayer meetings, you, with your silly little plan of getting people converted one by one, how can that possibly stand alongside our great socializing economic program in which a whole world can be revolutionized in a few years? You feeble lot. The world judges everything by size, by headlines, by imposing schemes, by vast advertisements. And it pours contempt on the feeble flock of, of the people of God. You have no intellect. You're out of date. You have no money. You have no status. Now, this type of attitude, though it may not be explicitly stated, underlies much of our society. And the effect is devastating. It has actually silenced most of us here. How do we respond to this? Take a look how uh, Nehemiah responds. He says, Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before thee, for they have demoralized the builders. So much for turn the other cheek. Is uh, Nehemiah out of line here? Is this, is this really a sub-Christian response? I, I don't think so. Let me uh, give you a couple things to think about. First of all, this appears to be uh, a private prayer ins- inserted in his memoirs that is now copied over into, into this passage. And in this, he's pouring out his heart to the Lord. He's being honest with God about how he feels, about how what's going on is really getting to him, and it's hurting him. So he's just opening himself up to God, and this is proper. This is, this is appropriate. Okay, also uh, notice that uh, his, uh, he's not seeking personal revenge. He's not, uh, these guys aren't his political com- uh, rivals. These aren't a competing corporation, business competitors. These are people who are actually genuinely standing against God and God's plans. Also, uh, realize that these people are doing real harm. That ridicule is not just a, 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 a harmless little thing. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never harm me. That's not true. Ridicule, ridicule is a powerful spiritual weapon. You know, the, that college professor who uh, refuses to honestly consider or refute the claims of Scripture, but speaks as if anyone who has any intelligence at all can see, obviously, that the Bible is absurd and that it's completely silly to believe it. This college professor is doing real harm. He's destroying people, and he's silencing the people that can help. And that neighbor who who is always putting down the Christian down the street is doing real harm. And the writer of the TV sitcom who makes... uh, religious people look petty and ridiculous, is doing real harm. That guy at the office who uh, ridicules love or self-denial is doing real harm. And Nehemiah is saying, God, I want to see it stopped. God, pay attention. 
He's not contemplating their eternal damnation when he says, uh, do not forgive their iniquity in verse 5. It's literally, do not cover it over. Don't ignore it. Don't fail to see it. Because, God, you have to do something about it. See, and realize Nehemiah is doing exactly what we are told to do in the New Testament. He's taking these things and he's taking them before God and he's leaving them in God's hands. That's exactly what Jesus did. Um, 1 Peter 2, 23, And while being insulted, he did not insult in return. While suffering, he offered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus just kept trusting God with it. Not that these weren't unjust, but he kept bringing it to God. See, Nehemiah could have started a, a slander campaign of his own. He could have written letters to Artaxerxes and, and poisoned his mind against these guys. Or he could have started insulting and threatening, but that would have been wrong. Let me read a, a brief passage in Romans 12, verses 17, 18, and 19. It says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible... So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See, vengeance isn't wrong. It's just not our job. It's right, but it's only right for God to take care of it. Consider David, the King David. This was a man who, at least for me, is the model of integrity, of honor, of patience. When Saul was chasing him, David really demonstrated the, the character of Christ. He had opportunity after opportunity to hurt Saul, and he didn't. He uh, refused to allow anyone around him to slander Saul or to speak evil against him. He refused to fight Saul. This is, is, for me, the model of Christian character. How could he tolerate such injustice? Well, uh, listen to one of his psalms, and there are a lot of psalms like this. This one deals specifically uh, with Saul and his men. This is Psalm 59. He says, Lord, do not be gracious to them. Punish their iniquities, destroy them in anger, that they may be no more, that men might know that God rules to the end of the earth. There are are many, many psalms where David says, God, get them. Why? Because this is David pouring his heart out to the Lord. And by doing that, and by honestly trusting that God will then take care of it, David was freed. He could go on, move on. He could love his enemy and move on. And not be silenced. Not just give up and be discouraged. Not fight back and gum things up with his own unrighteous response. Not be distracted from the work God had for him to do. And stew about it. If you don't take things to the Lord and honestly lay them before him, one of of several things will happen. You'll stew about it and it'll eat you up. And you'll either become discouraged and despair and quit... Or you'll attack. You'll become, uh, uh, you'll you'll plot how you can take revenge. How you can get back at this person. And you'll hate them. And you'll be distracted from what God wants you to be doing. And you'll gum things up. 
with your own unrighteous response. But as we do exactly what Nehemiah did, and exactly what David, and be honest with God and pour our hearts out, then we're free to move on. We're free to let it, leave it in God's hand, trusting that He will take care of righteousness. He will take care of justice. Well, Nehemiah moves on. Look at verse 6. So he built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. The people got back to work. He prayed, left it in God's hands, said, God, I trust you to take care of this, and put his attention back where God wanted it. And rather than discouraging these people, the opposition seems to have, uh, ha- have energized them, caused them to throw themselves more aggressively into their work. It's like the uh, Marine sergeant who, when he found himself surrounded, he turns to his men and he says, Men, we're surrounded. Don't let any of them escape. Their attitude was, there's opposition, but God's on our side. God will take care of it, and they went after it. They were aggressive in pursuing what God wanted. So they're back to work. They're back involved. They're back doing their best for the Lord. And that's when the second wave of problems hit. You know, again, I'm sure they were tempted to say, God, doggone it. Why is this happening? I'm trying to do it for you. Why do you keep throwing these things in my way? But that's not how they respond. Listen to uh, 7 and 8. See the new problems. Now it came about when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed. They were very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause a disturbance in it. See, again, that, that satanically energized anger and hatred. They, they picked up a couple more enemies. They already had Sanballat and the Samaritans. They already had Tobias and the Ammonites. Now they got the Arabs and the Ashdodites. Ashdod was a major Philistine city. So these are Philistines. They've got Samaritans to the north, uh, Ammonites to the east, Arabs to the south, and Philistines to the west. They've got problems on all sides. They've got obstacles coming from every direction. And see, these, these people, these enemies, knew they couldn't attack Nehemiah outright. Nehemiah had letters of protection from Artaxerxes. And so an invasion was out of the question. Artaxerxes wouldn't have stood for it. So what their plan is, is to develop a terrorist attack. Look at, uh, real briefly, verses 11. Listen to this. They said, They will not know or see until we come among them and kill them and put a stop to the work. And then verse 12, They will come up against us from every place where you may turn. See, their plan is to put together bands of terrorists who will sneak in, kill a few Jews, slip out. Then sneak in someplace else around the wall where the people are spread out. Kill a few and sneak out. And the hope is that through creating such a climate of confusion and fear that the workers will be immobilized. They'll be, they'll be so afraid and so discouraged and despondent that they'll despair and they'll quit and the work will stop. That's the plan. You know, modern terrorism isn't all that modern. It's always been Satan's tactic to cause uh, despair and confusion, to disrupt You know, Satan cannot attack us directly either. We've got protection from the king. But he can and does disrupt the work 
of the church, of the body, our ministry to one another, and our outreach to those outside. He can and does throw up any number of obstacles and frustrations and opposition. He can cause sickness. He can disrupt our schedules and our jobs and our relationships. He can um, even manipulate people's opposition to the gospel into physical attack as well as verbal or emotional abuse. But again, we are not unaware of his schemes. The whole purpose, the whole point is to disrupt and to discourage. And we don't have to be stopped. We don't have to give up. Because we know where he's coming from. We know why it's there. And we can keep going. Well, Nehemiah keeps going. He doesn't despair. He doesn't say, God, doggone it, I've tried and I've tried and everything I do doesn't work. No, he keeps going. He keeps adapting his plan as the need arises. He doesn't focus on his own inadequacy. He just keeps going. What he does in, 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 is to pray and to make a plan. Look at verse 9. He says, but we prayed to our God, and because of them we set up a guard against them day and night. This prayer isn't perfunctory. It's not just a ritual to get things started. You see it over and over in Nehemiah. He starts everything with prayer. That's not because he's a superstitious person. It's because he realizes that his only protection is God. You know, this guard that he sets up, is really somewhat of a silly precaution. If the enemy attacked in any kind of force, the guards would do absolutely nothing. These people he had weren't trained soldiers. They're families. They're, they're artists. They're, they're normal workers. His confidence is not in this guard. His confidence is in God. But he knows, having taken it to God and put it in God's hands, that now it's incumbent on him on himself, to come up with the best plan he can. And so this is the best plan he can come up with. You see, this, this coupling of faith and works we see over and over in Nehemiah. That he takes things to God, his confidence is in God, but having placed his confidence there, there are things he has to do. He has to come up with a plan. Are you out of a job? Take it to God. God is the only one who can provide for you. He's the only one who can offer you any security. But having taken it to God and trusting God, do your best to come up with an excellent resume. Uh, Send out applications if that's necessary. Even take a class on how to take interviews if you need to. Make a plan, a good plan, the best plan you are capable of. Now never trust that plan. Trust God, but have a plan, a good plan. You know, are you lonely? Or have you just moved? Well, take it to God. He is the comforter. But then make a plan on how you're going to get involved in fellowship, on how you're going to start serving the body. Make your best plan. And don't give up. Just because you called and offered to do something and nobody called back, well, don't give up. Say, well, God must not really want it. Keep after it. Make a new plan. If that plan didn't work, adjust your plan like Nehemiah does. Keep willing to change it. Are you sick? Take it to God. God is the healer. And only God is the healer. But then go to the doctor. And with him or her, 
develop as good a plan as you can for dealing with it. But never trust the plan. Only trust God. See, this is, is the pattern that we see in Nehemiah. So he has this plan. And then what happens? Verses 10 through 12. Then in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there's much rubble, or rubbish, excuse me. And we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said they will not know or see until we've come up among them and kill them and put a stop to the work. And it came about when the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, time after time, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. And again, as soon as they, uh, they make a plan, the plan stops working. See, people were, were getting worn out. Having to, to do the work on the wall and then stand guard and then work on the wall and then stand guard, it was wearing them out. The, the term for the, the strength of the burden bearers is failing is literally they're stumbling with fatigue. They're worn out and they're discouraged. They've reached their second crisis point. Any project has at least two crisis points. One is the, the process of making the decision to get involved and actually taking some steps to do it. The second one comes about midway, when all the enthusiasm is gone, when all the easy rocks to pick up have already been picked up. The only ones left are the ones way out there, are the ones that are buried and you've got to dig up. And all the, you're tired and you look around and that's just a puny little wall. And there's so much more wall to build. See, and they've hit this second crisis point. Their energy is gone. Their enthusiasm has gone. And they're discouraged. And on top of that, they're afraid. So, how does Nehemiah respond? Again, Nehemiah just comes straight at the problem. He sees their fear. So, look at verse... Uh, 13, then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the exposed places, and I stationed the people and families with their swords and their spears and their bows. He gives them a break from their labor. He says, okay, now I want you to guard. And so as families, they set up guards in the, in the vulnerable areas. But they're still afraid. That They're still discouraged. So he keeps going. That plan worked a little bit, but it didn't solve the problem. So I'm going to adapt it. I'm going to adjust it. I'm going to add to it. Verse 14, when I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. He starts off by saying, remember the Lord. Now, this isn't just a a battle cry like, remember the Alamo charge. Now, he's, he's quoting Deuteronomy 3, actually, verse 22. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and do not fear them. Well, what does he mean by remember the Lord? What he's saying is, remember who God is. Remember his faithfulness that he's demonstrated over and over. You see, Nehemiah knew his scriptures. He had seen in scripture God's Ability over and over and over as he delivered Israel from one enemy after another, from one predicament after another. God was able. And Nehemiah knew that because he knew his, his Bible. And he had read in his Bible of God's faithfulness. And he had experienced it in his life. 
And he knew what God had said. God had said that he would fight for Israel. And Nehemiah knew that. And so he said, God will fight for us. God will take care of us. You know, God has said things to us, too. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He said, you will be my witnesses. You will demonstrate my love. We know what God said and we know God's faithfulness. If we want the confidence of Nehemiah, we've got to know our Bibles like Nehemiah knew knew it. And we've got to know the God of our Bibles like Nehemiah knew him. Also, after he he charges them to remember the Lord, he says, also, fight for your your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your houses, your dog, your cat, your goldfish, everything. Fight. Now, what Nehemiah is doing here, I think, is he's demonstrating to them that they have a personal interest in doing what's right. They have an investment in following the Lord and and being obedient to the Lord. And he's not afraid to point that out. And I don't think we should be either. (coughs) Excuse me. It's not unspiritual for me to point out to you that by giving yourself completely to the Lord and serving the body, either by by teaching a Sunday school class, by by comforting the sick, by being the person in your growth group that, that really comes alongside those who are hurting or whatever way God gives you to serve the body. It's not unspiritual for me to point out that that's the way you're going to be fulfilled. It's not unspiritual for me to point out that the key to stability in your life is that you spend time with God. See, I think that's what Nehemiah is doing here. He's pointing out that it's in their interest to do what is right, to do what God wants. Then look at verse 15. It happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan. Then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. They're finally getting some progress. After hitting hurdle after hurdle, they're finally getting somewhere. But notice who gets the credit. It says God frustrated their plans. Well, I thought Nehemiah was making all of these plans. He's the one that set up the guards. He's the one that was doing these things. And Nehemiah isn't being pious and, uh, and humble excessively with, with false humility. Now he's seen things as they really are. He knew all along that his plans weren't what did things. It was God who carried the program. And Nehemiah knew that. That's why at every step, every phase, prayer is integral. And it's the starting point of every step. Again, that's an honest expression of Nehemiah's wisdom, his knowledge that it's God who is their strength, that it's God who is their protector. But it was people who warned them of the enemy. It was people who stood guard. It was a person, Nehemiah, who made the plans. Reminds me of a a joke I once heard about a a guy that was caught in a flood. He climbs up to the the, uh, top of his roof to avoid the rising waters. A boat comes along. The guy says, jump in, jump in. He says, no, I've prayed God will take care of me. He says, okay. Rose off. Pretty soon another boat comes along. And the same response, no, God's got it under control. He will save me. Finally, the helicopter comes over. And the guy's just on the tip of his, his roof. Drops him a line. He says, no, thank you. God is going to deliver me. 
the waters rise, and the guy drowns. And entering heaven, he goes up to God, and he said, God, what happened? I trusted you. God says, gee, I can't figure it out myself. I sent two boats and a helicopter. <laughs> See, we often uh, assume that there is a conflict or a contrast between God doing something and people doing something. There is no conflict there. There is no contrast. In fact, God's principal means of meeting your needs is through people. It's very exceptional for him to do otherwise. But we don't really believe this. When we're hurting, when we're discouraged, we cry out to God and we say, God, comfort me. God, give me courage. But then we push away our brothers and sisters who are trying to find out how we're really doing. And then we say, God, why have you forsaken me? Or when we're, we're tempted or have fallen into sin, we avoid Christians. We stay home from growth group. Well, don't do that. Go to your growth group. Find other believers. That's what they're there for, to, to love you and to restore you. Let God love you through people, because that's the way He's going to do it. That's His principal means of loving you. Well, for the rest of the chapter, what uh, Nehemiah does is he comes up with a final plan. The, the threat of invasion is not imminent, but it's still there. So what he does is he, he sets the people up. He organizes the people. <clears throat> for, the, for the builders, they wear their sword on their belt, so they have both hands to build the wall. For the uh, uh, burden bearers, who are w- walking way out in exposed areas, they always carry their weapon at the ready. Nehemiah keeps his own personal trained soldiers mobile with the long-range weapons, the spears and the arrows. Um, he works out lines of communication, has officers stationed, has a plan in case they're attacked to blow the trumpet and have everybody rally around that point. Comes up with the best plan he can. Again, you see this over and over. Nehemiah comes up with the best plan he can. And that, it seems like a good plan to me. I don't know, maybe uh, Hannibal or Robert E. Lee or, or Napoleon could have come up with a better plan. But see, that's not at issue here because Nehemiah is the one that God had on the scene. Nehemiah was the one who was involved and available. And what God wanted was his best plan. Because the plan wasn't what was saving them. God was saving them. The plan wasn't where Nehemiah's confidence was. Take a look at his attitude towards his plans. He has no loyalty to them. He's ready at any time to scrap his plans or to change his plans regardless of, or or, or in meeting the new need or or dealing with the new situation. He has no loyalty to those plans. He has loyalty to God. He has no confidence in those plans. He has confidence in God. His commitment is not to his schedule, his program. His commitment is to God's goals. And that's the model for us. That we need to be open like Nehemiah, to getting involved. To, to doing our absolute best. And when we try to do that and the pressures come and the, the obstacles come up, we don't give up. We don't say, God, you must not really want this. I've got other things to do with my time rather than face all these problems. We don't focus on our own inadequacy. <clears throat> we don't uh, get angry at the people around us. Like Nehemiah, we do two things. We pray, putting our confidence in God, remembering who He is, what He's done. 
and we plan. The best plan we can come up with. We go over or under or around or through the problems, but always trusting God. And if we run into a wall here, we back up, pray, and plan again and keep going. Doggedly pursuing God's objectives. And what are God's objectives? Just a few of them. One is that you spend time with Him. As soon as you make a decision to do that, you'll never be so tired as when that time comes. And you'll never feel so much pressure of other things to do. Well, how do you respond? You pray and you plan. You plan how to get more rest. Or you plan a better time to meet with Him. Or Or you plan how to get the other things done so the pressure is off. But you keep going after it. Another one of his objectives is that, that, that we men take some spiritual leadership in our homes and we start training our family. Boy, if you want to feel some frustration, plan a family Bible time. That's humiliating. The kids are stuck on the TV and you say, come on, let's have a Bible time. They say, jeez. You go back to the TV and you're getting all these feelings of, who do you think you are? You feeble person. Where did you go to seminary? Who made you a religious expert? What do you have to say to these kids? Go ahead. Pray. Make a plan. Get some some devotional aids from Christian Supply. And take a run out of it. And no matter how miserably you fail, back up, pray, and make a new plan. And keep planning until it works. Another is that you serve the body. Make a plan. Where's a need that you know of? What's something you can do? Write a letter to, to missionaries, uh, full bulletins, host a growth group, teach a Sunday school. There's, there's any number of things. Make a plan. Pray and make a plan. And don't give up just because you called and nobody called you back. Make a new plan if that one didn't work, but keep going after it. Another is that we share God's love with people at home or in the office or in the neighborhood, whatever. As soon as you do, you're going to feel all kinds of opposition. You're going to feel pe- people are going to talk about you, ridicule you, even resent you. You're going to get feelings like, boy, somebody else could do this much better than I. That's probably true. But so what? That doesn't matter. God has you there. He wants your best plan because your plan isn't what's going to do it. God is going to do it. Your confidence isn't in your plan. Your confidence is in God. You just offer the best plan you have. And God takes it. That's all He wants, is your best plan. Now this morning, we're going to share communion together. And I think it's very appropriate. Because communion was designed by God as a time to remember the Lord. And the foundation of everything we've been considering this morning is remembering the Lord. Remembering His ability. Remembering His goodness. Now, the focus of communion is remembering his death and his resurrection, which are the ultimate examples of God's ability to raise a dead body to life. They're ultimate examples of God's love and commitment to us to send his son to die. It's the ultimate example of overcoming an obstacle, our sin, of overcoming an obstacle. They killed his son, and he took it, and he turned it into the greatest event of history. So what I would like to do is, as the men distribute the bread, I would like for us just to be quiet. Uh, They're going to play some music for us. 
And to think about God's greatness, God's goodness, God's wisdom, and God's power expressed in sending His Son to die for us. What that means about His commitment to us, His love for us. And think about His raising Him back to life. What that means about the incredible power of our God. A power unlike anything that man can approximate. And realize this is the awesome, loving, good God we worship. And marvel at Him. Spend time praising Him for this.